we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the Center. And we are welcoming back one of our previous guests, Todd Benzman, who is an analyst at the Center. And we just had him on a couple of weeks ago talking about his trip to certain parts of the Texas-Mexico border, the parts that are kind of upriver and less busy, but much busier than they used to be. And so it's, it's, things have definitely changed. It was one of the aspects that isn't all that widely covered about how sort of the overflow of illegal crossings is making its way to less busy parts of the border. But what Todd did recently was go down to the uh, sort of ground zero, as it were, of the border crisis, which is South Texas, pretty much all the way down close to where the Rio Grande empties into the Gulf of Mexico, and spent some time down there with the law enforcement, especially some of his former colleagues from the Department of Public Safety and others. And I thought it was worth having Todd back on to tell us what he saw there, how it struck him, and you know, was it different from what he had seen elsewhere along the border, that sort of thing. So Todd, welcome back. And just tell us a little bit initially about what was this trip and what did you see? Sure, good to be here. The main takeaway that I had from visiting this part of the border is, uh, which is the, as you mentioned, the ground zero for all of the largest volumes of illegal immigration that's going on, was just how normalized and systemic, regularized that the immigration was there. It's now settled into what I thought was a kind of mechanized normalcy. The American side authorities, which roughly break down into Border Patrol, National Guard, and Texas DPS, and the rafters, the cartel boatmen, have a relationship, developed an operational relationship where they discuss what's happening. They don't arrest. They don't run. The predator and prey relationship that existed before is gone. They're simply all running an enterprise together. So it's the Border Patrol, in other words, is kind of a welcome wagon, basically. Exactly. But, you know, it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to just actually see them become managers of a conveyor belt sort of system that's bringing over just thousands and thousands of mostly families, illegal immigrants who are also teenagers and underage minors. That's where that's happening tens of thousands just crossing in full, plain view of National Guard and DPS and Border Patrol, waving them in, fearless, not cautious, just simply, this is the way it is now. We're bringing people in, and we're, he- we're pointing them up the road to 
Border Patrol processing mobile field stations, as, as it were, that are set up. They can be collapsed and moved and set up anywhere on the Texas side. And what I did was watch all, all night long, a couple of nights, as raft after raft after raft, sometimes two and three abreast, on the river landed on the Texas side, emptied their loads. The people would walk up the sand and line up. The National Guard and or Border Patrol would direct them over to where a field station was or sometimes set up a field station right there, take photos, put their property in plastic bags, load them up on buses, and take them to another uh, processing station inland. And so I know that the media has largely vacated the stage, so to speak, or the audience. There's not, I didn't see a lot of media. I, I do sense that the media has, after the initial shock and awe of what was going on down there, left. But this mass migration is still very much happening just beyond public awareness. And so that really struck me to watch this process, which has now been systematized and made efficient to just move the most possible people over with the least amount of trouble possible. But that's still going on. So it's basically become uh, routine, in other words, what you're saying, sort of mass crossings, which are the only way to put it, I think, is facilitated by the federal government, has become a routine process at the Texas border. Yeah. And the smugglers, they have no fear whatsoever. It's almost as though the natural adversarial relationship that always has always existed between the smugglers and even the immigrants and the authorities on the American side is just gone. And I've I've been I've spent a lot of years at the border, uh, a lot of time on the border, and I have never seen anything like that before uh, happening. It was really and and I'll say this that the border patrol agents that I talked to are very disheartened by this. It seemed like morale was just terrible. They, this is not what they signed up for. This isn't their job. It has nothing, their training, but they're ordered off. They are ordered to do this. And so uh, there's a morale issue going on with all of that. And the other thing that really struck me that stood out about what I saw is that this is kind of historic in a way. I, I've never heard of another mass migration crisis. We have them, like uh, Biden says, and other people we all know that we've, we have these things crop up from time to time, but, but it usually occurs despite opposition from the government, where the government is doing everything it can to stop it or attenuate it or slow it down or something. You know, they're standing in opposition, but I've never seen or heard of a mass migration where the opposite is the case, where the federal government is actually doing all that it possibly can to facilitate a mass migration like this. And it looks like it's going to go on for years. Media seems to have accepted it. This is the new norm. And that strikes me as something really different in the history of border security. Now, did you see any of the single male migrants that are still being expelled under Title 42? That's the emergency health measure, pandemic-related measure that allows Border Patrol to just turn people around and send them back, no hearings, no nothing. 
and the people you're talking about, the families and the unaccompanied, so-called unaccompanied minors, were specifically exempted by the Biden administration from that rule. But the administration boasts that it still is applying Trump's pandemic-related expulsion rule to those who, who are single crossers, almost all men. Did you see any of those folks? That's the first question. But also, at some point, this Title 42 emergency rule is going to be lifted because, you know, the pandemic, it's, it's really not a factor any longer. I mean, I haven't worn a mask in days now, weeks. What does it look like to you would happen once even these single adult men are all let in? Well, to answer your first question, I did see some single males, but not many. This area, I was in Roma, Texas, Star County, mostly, which is regarded as an epicenter for this. Most of the video that we saw with the big media came out of this region. They're mostly gone now. I saw one boat raft filled with military-aged young men who were not communicative. When I tried to talk to these guys, they ran past me, would not talk. You know, you say, como estas, uh, mi amigo, and usually they'll somebody will try to answer you back. But these guys disappeared into the dark, and I'm, I'm presuming that those guys were runners and didn't want to get caught right. and probably would not get caught in this area because I knew that all the Border Patrol agents in the area, at least 10 of them, were manning a mobile processing station really busy with the uh, women and children. A welcome wagon, basically. The welcome wagon, yeah. The reception center or, you know, you, know, you have Border Patrol agents who are essentially Walmart greeters now. <laughs> but most of what I saw was just boatload after boatload of women and children, babies, fathers, and, you know, families. They're coming in and they, they knew to go straight to the National Guard or whoever had a uniform on and very compliantly line up. Everybody knew what was happening and what where they were going and the whole process. Everybody understood their roles and responsibilities and what was going to happen. So you could see the smugglers, having done this, they would have established some kind of relationship. But if the migrants themselves are that clued into what's going on, presumably they've been coached and, and sort of prepared to understand what's going on. So uh, sure. Yeah. And they've they've also seen, you know, thousands and thousands of predecessors go right through the same system. So everybody kind of knows what's going on. Even the the as I mentioned earlier, the smugglers, the boatmen, pilots, I don't know what you call them. These guys are, you know, coming over with their rafts. You know, they're co collaborative with the uh, yeah, I was with a DPS officer, Texas DPS officer. And, you know, I watched him have a conversation with one of the rafters saying, hey, I've only got these three boats. This is my third one. I'm, I'm done. There's no more left on the other side. And then he came back and passed that intelligence along to the Border Patrol. They all like to know that so that they can figure out what they're going to do with the rest of the night. Unbelievable. And then um, also I noticed that on the other side of the river, there was no even pretense of stealth. Nobody was trying to be quiet. They're all noisy with flashlights and, you know, children crying and giggling and men getting after their kids. And nobody's even pretending to be stealthy. No, they don't have to. And I just that, that whole thing is just very upside down to somebody who spends a lot of time at the border. Th 
this is going on, even though the media has sort of receded, and I think the country is probably thinking, well, this is a, a permanent state of things, a fait accompli. It's just the way it's going to be, you know, just tens of thousands of people just being let in. Now, to get to your other question, when and if they lift 42, Title 42, I mean, obviously, you would see a very significant surge in the, this whole process, this whole system would have to be expanded. And it looks like they are expanding capacity up and down the border, vast new tent camps that you know they certainly would be able to facilitate large numbers of even more illegal immigrants the day that that happens. Interesting. Yeah, no doubt. One of the blog posts you did on this at our site, cis.org, you talked about some of the things that Texas Department of Public Safety, which is basically the state police, was doing. And the sense I got from the people you talked to and from what you wrote is that they're trying to use state authorities to go after people who are coming over and committing crimes. And that's good as far as it goes, but what's your sense about how much of an impact that can have? I mean, that can have some public safety benefits, but it doesn't seem like it would make any difference on the numbers of people since ordinary illegal immigrants, there's a limit to what state law enforcement can do about that. That's right. The Texas Department of Public Safety and Greg Abbott, the leadership, uh, political leadership in Texas, is on the one hand very alarmed at what's happening. They see the collapse of border control down there. Also, I'm guessing they may even see some political opportunity. There is a uh, an election coming up, and Abbott is going to have primary challenges in that. But in any case, they sent 500 Texas DPS troopers down there and TID and SWAT teams and aircraft and really sort of plugging the holes. But you're right. The state has no jurisdiction when it comes to illegal immigration and what to do with people who are crossing illegally. That is an entirely federal matter. So there's going to be very little impact, and they know that there would be little impact when they catch illegal immigrants, groups of them, a Texas DPS trooper, they turn them over to Border Patrol, which just feeds them into the system, the conveyor belt that I just talked about. So that's not really doing much on total numbers. Where they may have some public safety impact, of course, is going to be with drug smuggling. They have legal hooks. They can charge cases with human smuggling with criminal aliens that might try to get in that have warrants on them or can be detained and charged in some state way. And so they're doing a lot of that. They're plugging the holes. And I think that it's useful to see a state do that, although it's very expensive. And they're also expanding now to other sectors of the Texas border, Del Rio and El Paso. So I don't think that the state is going to go away. They're making a, a political statement in a way that look what the Democrats are doing under Joe Biden and how what we're doing to protect Texans. But I also think that it has material impact on public safety, too. So for whatever their motivations are, it can't hurt to have them down there. Right. And it does seem like if there's state law against human smuggling, and some states have that, 
seems to me just arresting those guys on the raft so you only arrest a few of them and you kind of end that collegial relationship they're not going to go away but it seems like it would make it more problematic to just row across the river and uh you know wave to the border patrol and ask how their kids are doing yeah well i did dig into that a little bit i asked the dps director why doesn't texas dps just arrest these guys when they see them right and the answer was tactical, that they had tactical reasons for, for doing that, where they kind of feel like if they try to affect an arrest in and around women and children, that things could go sideways, uh, yeah, either for the, for the children. It's like kind of hostage-type situation sure. where, you know, the, the smugglers are pretty close. If they resist, there could be a problem. Director McCraw did tell me that his guys, whenever they get a chance, will get in there and slice those boats up. And you can see the evidence of sliced up boats up and down that river, but it doesn't take much to replace those sure. those rafts. I mean, it can't be but 100 bucks to get a new raft. Right, right. So, Interesting. What is the scope of this state effort? You would mention some numbers, but I mean, is this like doubling the size of the— uh troopers down there? Are the troopers, are these guys who usually have like speed traps and stuff who are now doing a totally different kind of work? And what's this kind of thing cost for Texas? Yeah, right now, because remember the state also has deployed the National Guard down there. Mostly the National Guard role is for spotting. They're looking for drug mules. They're looking for tactical intelligence situations on the ground that they can report to the law enforcement guys, the badge and gun toters. And it's also just good to have them around. Now, their weapons by day, they're not allowed to have magazines in those weapons. They, they're carrying uh, ARs. So they're carrying, night, they're carrying rifles with no bullets, basically. They're carrying rifles with no bullets. However, the magazines are very close by, so I guess they could plug in and go to town if they needed to. When night falls, they're able to load the magazines in, but they can't rack around in until they need it. Uh, that's just to prevent, you know, the possibility of some terrible accident sure. or something like that, which would just undermine the whole operation, as you can imagine. Which actually did happen a number of years ago. There yeah. was, uh, it was in Texas, in fact. I think it was a Marine Corps anti-drug patrol, and they ended up shooting a kid who had a shotgun and was, like, herding his family's goats or something. He heard the sound. He moved, pointed a gun at them, and obviously the whole thing was a tragedy, but that politically probably is the uh, origin of the kind of rules you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. The guardsmen call that amber. They go to an amber state. I'm not sure where that comes from. But anyway, the Department of Public Safety, they doubled up their numbers. So they had 500 down there in the Rio Grande Valley sector, Star County area. Before all this, uh, they had 500 and they doubled it to 1,000. They are you know, bringing in troopers from all over the state. And Tactically, what that means is, and you can see it, I mean, you can't, you know, lob a pebble in any direction in Roma or Rio Grande City without hitting a DPS trooper. They are literally everywhere. Saturation. They're pulling people over and they're putting the pressure on looking for, you know, anybody that might come up as a drug smuggler or might have drugs in the vehicle. And this has increased the number of hot pursuits. In all of these towns, I did a ride-along with one of them who was explaining that after the first month or so of, of the operation, that everybody started to get smart, even the drug traffickers, 
making sure that their insurance papers were in order and that their taillights were all fixed and, you know, oh, so that, that sort of thing. In other words, so there'd be no excuse to get pulled over. Exactly. Interesting. So you're seeing a lot of pullovers, a lot of pressure on motorists. At one point, we were driving behind a truck that had a big Santa Muerta insignia on the, on the rear window. The drug cartels in that region worship this as a saint. And it's a pretty good indicator that whoever was in that vehicle was a some kind of a, a cartel member working on this side. But, you know, they just the, my trooper just absolutely could not find anything wrong. The guy was going exactly the speed limit. He turned his blinkers on and, you know, when he shifted lanes and eventually we just let him go, you know. So the drug smugglers are driving safely, at least. At least, yeah, at least that. And then, of course, you know, they're in the air. They put extra air assets, took me up uh, on patrol, and they're helping the ground border patrol guys keep track of moving groups and especially drug smugglers. Because remember, you know, this is a heyday for drug and dope smugglers with border patrol being so busy with babysitting duty. They really value those air assets up, up there. And then, of course, the DPS has boats on the water as well. They've had those there already for quite a few years. They're just increasing the number of hours on the river. And, you know, those are gunboats that have a lot of firepower. Yeah, you had a picture of uh, one of them in your blog post. And, I mean, I'm no expert on guns, but those look like 50 caliber machine guns mounted on this boat. Yeah, technically, I mean, they're 308 fully automatic machine guns, belt-fed, wow. the whole thing. They I don't think they, they have to use them much, right. so that's kind of a thing. But, you know, they're out there, too, so it's uh, water, air, and land. The idea, again, is that they're going after things that the state can charge. The right. immigration issue, they're avoiding any perception that they're laying claim to that at all. Did you get any sense that they're coordinating with Border Patrol in the sense that you know, if Border Patrol is playing welcome wagon because of Biden administration in orders, drug smugglers can use that often as a kind of distraction. So they cross a whole bunch of teenagers and families here, and then a mile away, they're, you know, they have a chance to run their dope across because nobody's watching. Does Border Patrol and Texas State Police coordinate so that if the Border Patrol is on diaper duty, at least the DPS is trying to plug some holes? Oh, yeah. They're all in contact by radio. And whenever Border Patrol is chasing a group, the Texas DPS knows to go around and guard on the flanks ah, I see. for drug smuggling. They all work in tandem on all of those kind of things. And it's all very tactical. They've got that down pretty well. Well, that's good to hear anyway. Yeah. Does the Yeah, there's a lot of that. Does the fact that even the Texas law enforcement have to basically play welcome wagon by turning people over to Border Patrol, does that have an effect on their morale as well, or is it more just Border Patrol, because obviously that's Border Patrol's job, whereas if Texas DPS has to hand over a bunch of illegal immigrants in order to get the welcome package, they at least can go after regular criminals too. I mean, did you get any sense from those guys on that? Well, I mean, all of them that I talked to, you know, I spent I spent a couple of days with DPS people up and down, and, you know, they all know exactly what's happening. I mean, it's clear, it's obvious that there's a welcome wagon out, and they're doing what, they, what they're supposed to be doing, but I think that they're 
the morale problem really mostly resides with Border Patrol. Those guys are really, you know, sick at heart, honestly. I uh, talked to quite a few of them out there. It's, I mean, they're disgusted. Uh, they, right. uh, there's no other way to put it. They're just disgusted. Everyone that I ever talked to just can't believe that this is happening. And also, in my view, it's not a – I know that there's a point of contention as to whether Biden's policies caused this. They deny it, and their supporters deny it, and, and people on the uh, conservative side are saying, yeah, it's Biden. But you know, I always take pains to ask the immigrants that I meet why they did it and what, to what extent the Biden administration's policies and rules had on their decision-making process. And I had a pretty good video where I asked a group that just came off the boat. Yeah, why don't we play that video for the audience? And even though you won't be able to see it, you'll at least be able to get the audio. Did they hear that the new president was going to help them? Is that why they came now? The video itself is on our website at cis.org. You can see them all just, they're all raising their hands and they're saying, yeah. In other words, it's not, it doesn't seem to be in any way trying to make you feel better or say what they think you want to hear or whatever. They're like, almost like shrugging. It's like, yeah, well, of course, that's why we're here. Yeah. And I followed up with another question. Did you understand that if you brought children that you would be let in? And they all answered in the affirmative again, shaking their heads, yes. And then one of them said, see, so they understand what the rules are. They're not dumb. They understand that they're not going to spend $5,000 ahead, which is what some of them told me they paid for this trip over the river and not get in and not, they're not going to risk it. It's all tied up in their smuggling fee as to whether they're going to, their decisions are going to pay off and that they're not going to end up bankrupted by the smuggling fee. It's really what it all boils down to for these folks. Right. Thanks, Todd, for this depressing look at the welcome wagon on the border. <laughs> the I can imagine the administration probably doesn't mind the fact that, as you suggested, a lot of the Border Patrol agents are disgusted by this because, you know, it seems like they wouldn't mind if people took early retirement and left to go to jobs at some urban police department, where, in fact, Border Patrol officers are actually pretty much in demand since they already know Spanish. It's a requirement of being on the line. And the Border Patrol has one of the more demanding federal law enforcement training programs. So my point here is that attrition is probably part of the goal of the Biden administration to have fewer and fewer agents so that the ones that are left are the ones who don't mind just collecting a check for being a welcome wagon. Yeah, make them miserable until they leave. That old uh, right. tactic. That's, that seems to be at least part of what they have in mind. So thank you, Todd. If you visit another part of the border or somewhere else, uh, we'll have you back to talk some more about that or when you've got other projects going that are not related to the border as well. So thanks for coming on, Todd. Great. Thanks. And finally, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that happened this week. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is probably the most important lobbying group in the United States. It's the voice of especially big business, but it presents itself as the voice of business overall. And it has always been relentlessly promoting amnesty and unlimited immigration. This has been one of its most important 
goals, arguably its most important chief objective politically. And this week they released a report about what they call a uh, job crisis. And I think it's, they're identifying probably something that's a real problem. The report says our nation has far too many people without jobs, far too many jobs without people to fill them. And as a result, businesses can't thrive. They call it a national economic crisis and say we need to close the jobs gap. Now, businesses often complain about this sort of thing in a self-interested and tendentious way, but there, this is probably, there's probably something to this. We had an economic contraction forced by the government in reaction to the virus. And, you know, our economy is a huge organism with hundreds of millions of parts. And you don't just switch something like that back on like a light switch. It's going to take time to recover from the dislocations that stemmed from the reaction to the virus. And the Chamber of Commerce's report has basically, they have a whole bunch of recommendations. They group them under four general headings. And the first three have nothing to do with immigration. And, you know, they're not the kind of things the center works on, but they have a lot of sensible elements to them, probably. For instance, the first one is help Americans acquire the skills necessary to fill today's open jobs. They recommend a bunch of different things like apprentice programs, for instance. Sure, okay, it's, uh, that seems sensible enough. Their second heading, improve educational and job training opportunities for the jobs of tomorrow. Sounds kind of gimmicky, and there's some gimmicky stuff in there, but things like work-study programs, uh, I think, if I remember, this isn't in the report, but I think Northeastern University in Boston does something like where you study for one semester and then you work in a job that's related to your course of study for a semester and you switch off with semesters. Again, seems things like that seem make sense. Maybe they'll help. Their third heading, remove barriers to entering the workforce. Again, very sensible recommendations in there to try to get to enable ex-cons, for instance, and recovering drug addicts to make it easier for them to get back into the job market. Reduce these occupational licensing requirements that in a lot of states make it hard to start your own little business. You have to spend, you know, thousands of dollars, hundreds of hours studying things that really aren't relevant just to start some little business that really shouldn't require that level of government oversight. So again, these are not things CIS works on, but these are common sense recommendations. And then you get to the fourth heading, which is the entire point of this report. All the rest of it is just window dressing, which is expand the workforce through immigration reform. Essentially, they're calling for doubling legal immigration beyond the 1.1 million we usually take now and dramatically expanding the guest worker admissions, which it changes but run at something like three quarters of a million a year now. And, you know, this is at a time when the January numbers, we published this. So this is, you know, this is from several months ago. It's the most recent one we published. We have another one coming up. There were 67.5 million adults in the United States uh, who were either looking for work, so they were unemployed technically, because to be unemployed, according to the government definition, you have to have looked for work in the previous four weeks, or 
they're not even in the labor force. They're adult working age people who aren't working for one reason or another. They're looking for work or they're not even bothering to look for work. 67.5 million people, potential workers. And the Chamber of Commerce is saying that we need to expand the workforce by doubling employment-based visas, doubling H-1Bs, doubling H-2Bs, all kinds of things like this. I mean, they have one recommendation after another. All Their whole kind of wish list for de facto unlimited immigration. And the beyond just the shamelessness of calling for massive increases in immigration when we have so many Americans who are not working, is that even the sensible recommendations in this report that the Chamber of Commerce released this week, things like trying to make it easier for ex-cons to enter the workforce, getting businesses to offer apprenticeship programs, etc., all of those other recommendations are undermined by their attempt to dramatically increase immigration because the incentives for businesses to do things that would make it easier for ex-cons to get hired. The incentives disappear if you can just hire more immigrants. The political pressure that would be necessary to change, for instance, some of these occupational licensing rules, ridiculous requirements that you spend hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars in order to just be able to do hair braiding, for instance. What incentive is there to exert political pressure? on the people defending those outmoded programs if you can just hire other people. Apprentice programs, apprenticeships, they cost money for businesses because you have a less productive worker. Hopefully, you're training the person up. He will become a productive worker. I, I Personally, I think they're a great idea. But if a business can hire immigrant workers who already know how to do bricklaying, why would you bother trying to find a young American and train that person into how to do bricklaying when you've got a ready-made one who will just come in and on top of it, especially if he's a guest worker, you kind of own him. And uh, he's not even a free worker who's able to just quit and take a job from somewhere else. So the bottom line is the advocates, the lobbyists pushing for de facto unlimited immigration are not even dissuaded by the economic emergency we have experienced over the past year. They, even that doesn't turn them away from pushing for ever higher levels of immigration. They're kind of like, and I mean no disrespect to real estate agents, but kind of like the, the realtor's slogan that, it's all, that, that now is a good time to buy a house. In other words, they always want you to buy a house because they're making money from the churn, from the sales of houses, regardless of whether interest rates are high or low, prices are high or low, it's always a good time to buy a house. Well, for the advocates of unlimited immigration, like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, it's always a good time to push for open borders. And this latest report really should be an eye-opener for the public and lawmakers and others that the lobbying forces behind the push for high immigration are not good faith actors. They will use any excuse, any conditions to argue for high and increased immigration. If unemployment is low, we need more immigration. If unemployment is high, we need more immigration. It's shameless and 
I initially thought it was, frankly, kind of a gag, a joke, but it's not. It's a real thing. Until next week, this is Mark Krikorian, director of the Center for Immigration Studies, signing off from Parsing Immigration Policy. You can see all of CIS's work at our website, cis.org, and I hope you'll tune in next week.